I'm Kay Firth-Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of In AI We Trust. Kay is still traveling around the world this week, and so we are very fortunate to be joined by Kathy Baxter, our good friend, our senior advisor, our board member, our instructor in the badge program, and our in-house expert. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I'm so glad you're here because we have a great episode today. I loved our episode last week with Joaquin. They only left me asking more questions, and some of them will be very applicable today when we talk to Suresh Venkatasubramanian. Yeah, I think there's so much that he had to share, and I can't wait for our listeners to, to hear all about it. This will be a good one, so let's dive in. This week in AI We Trust, we are thrilled to be joined by Suresh Venkata Subramanian. Suresh is a professor of computer science and data science at Brown University. And until last August, he was an advisor in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy as Assistant Director for Science and Justice. In that capacity, he helped co-author the blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights. Previously, Suresh spent over a decade teaching at the University of Utah, where he received a career award from the NSF for his work in the Geometry of Probability and the Test of Time Award at ICDE 2017 for his work in privacy. He is a past member of the Computing Community Consortium Council of the CRA. He spent four years from 2017 to 2021 as a member of the board of the ACLU in Utah, and is a past member of New York City's Failure to Appear Tool, FTA, Research Advisory Council, the Research Advisory Council for the First Judicial District of Pennsylvania, and the Utah State Auditors Commission on Protecting Privacy and Preventing Discrimination. Whew, that's a lot. Suresh, we are so glad that you could join us today. And of course, I am here as well with our amazing host, Miriam Vogel. Welcome, Suresh. We're so excited to have you on our discussion today. Delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Amazing. Well, to begin, we would love to hear about your journey to a professional focus on responsible AI. I believe your work in this space goes back a ways and that your lab at the University of Utah was one of the first to focus on fairness, explainability, and inequality in technology and AI. If you could tell us a bit about that and what motivated you to go into this area and, and perhaps also maybe you could tell us about the research that you're most proud of. It's, it's quite a story, and I will say up front that I seriously doubt I was anywhere near the first. People have been looking at this for a long time. I, I just happened to get lucky in terms of timing, so I'll say that. <laughs> but um, the story, so I was, you know, um, as I like to call myself, an, an, a very unwoke computer scientist for a long time, just doing, you know, I, I, my background's in theoretical computer science, and I did algorithms, geometry, geometry of probability, things like that for a long time. I slowly started getting into data mining and machine learning as, you know, my interest in geometry and data started becoming an interesting in what we do with data. And around the time I went on sabbatical, and this is a plug for going on sabbatical and for getting tenure and sort of being able to think 
allegedly bigger thoughts. I started attempting to think some bigger thoughts and saying, well, you know, I could continue the work I've been doing. It's interesting work. Or I could try to, you know, prognosticate and try to imagine where the world might be going and what might be interesting questions to look at. And it was, you know, even in 2012, I think it was pretty clear that machine learning was going to be everywhere and everyone's going to be using it. And the question then to me became, well, do we know what it's doing and how do we know what it's doing and how can we be sure that you know when aws says it can run our models for us that it's doing what we want so it was, it was really more of a technocratic lens of okay how do we know systems are doing what they claim they're doing i read a lot of sci-fi and i read the short story by cory doctorow called human readable where the whole story was themed around this question of you know if we live in a world where technology is controlling traffic is controlling our news controlling everything how do we know it's not manipulating us and so I started thinking about that. I started working on some papers. And again, second plug for interdisciplinarity. I was at a dinner with a bunch of uh, faculty from across campus at Haverford College where my colleague had invited me to give a talk. And there was a sociologist there who I was chatting with, trying to find some you know common points of connection. And, and he mentioned the Griggs v. Duke power case that led to the formation of disparate impact, the, the, the disparate impact doctrine. And that, again, sort of starts sparking more thoughts in my head, the realization that, you know, the idea that you can, well, and I'm paraphrasing because I'm not a lawyer, you can separate intent from impact and still have some material consequences means that now algorithms are in play because even without intent, there is a problem of the impact caused by algorithms. And maybe that's a question worth asking. And that's really one thing led to another. I started, you know, asking questions, pulling threads, and here I am. <laughs> it's really a, a lot of serendipitous, accidental things that all happened to get me where I am now. Well, thank you for sharing that journey with us. It's so interesting, that mix of hard work and focus that whenever you took a breath allowed you to, as you say, pull the thread, go deeper. And it's interesting, the theme we're hearing, our last episode with Joaquin was also talking about when he was given an opportunity to take a pause and a breath, that is what led to some of these big aha moments and also turned him in deeper to responsible AI work. So you, you've said so many interesting things, including that computer scientists have to design and imagine differently. They have to design for societal benefit. And if we're going to achieve our goals of more responsible AI, this is going to have to happen as a movement. And I really appreciate the context that you give. It's something we also say at Equal AI. And I would love to hear more about what you think this movement should look like and who would participate? And really importantly, how do you persuade people to join you in this movement? Yeah, I, I feel this very strongly because I feel like, you know, I, I say this, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a card carrying computer scientist. I love the field, I love what I do. And I, I feel like computer science has a lot to offer. And I feel like the reason why we're in the place we're in right now is in many ways a failure of imagination, right? A failure to imagine differently because we're used to a certain way of thinking. We're used to thinking about optimizing for accuracy. We're used to thinking about, oh, someone throws data over the fence, we build a model and throw it back over the fence and don't ask any questions. We're just used to it. It's not something that has to be. It's not something intrinsic in how we design. It just is. And sometimes all it takes is say, why? <laughs> You know, be that annoying two-year-old, like, why? Why? <laughs> you, know, you know, why do we have to do it this way? And that's, I think, part of it. I think a lot of the work that's happened over the past decade has been a lot of why are we doing it this way? 
But you have to go beyond that, right? You have to then say, why are we doing this way? Why can't we do it this other way, right? I know there's a lot of, for example, valid critique of sort of techno-solutionism, right? That we must have solutions for every problem. I think those critiques are all valid that, you know, sometimes the best thing to do is to do nothing. But sometimes the better thing to do is to suggest something very different, to get people to think, okay, I need to do something. You at least are giving me something different to do. There's another way to ask. So one example is, you know, even something as simple as the switch from optimizing for accuracy to being willing to think about optimizing for fairness. It's a small thing. Maybe we take it for granted now that, oh, this is the thing we should do. But itself is a good example of, oh, can we imagine a different kind of way to optimize? And what does this do? I mean, if you see the number of papers that, you know, I have to now review when I'm on program committees for conferences in, in Europe, or ICML or other machine learning conferences, there are tons of papers now saying, oh, let's try to optimize for this notion of fairness or that notion of fairness. Not all of them are going to be maybe directly impactful, but they all show that once you open up those questions, you can harness a lot of interest from a lot of people and say, oh, let's play with these new questions now. Now, I don't mean play to disparage the serious nature of these questions. They are serious. But when you asked, how do you get people to be involved? That's how you do it, right? A lot of folks in the space, and I, I was one of them, so I, I understand this, don't necessarily understand or are fully comfortable with navigating the societal impact of their work. They just, it's, it's just, they're not trained to do it. We're not trained. It just makes a feel, I was talking to someone today who says, I'm very glad that you're doing it so that I don't have to do it. And I think that's an honest response. So for folks like that to bring computer scientists into it, to sort of get them to slowly suck them in to make them think about this, let's, let's expand the scope of problems we're asking so people can initially think about them as just mathematical puzzles that they want. But then just like me, they can start pulling the threads and realize how impactful and how important these questions are. And that's how I think about it, right? Give people options, give people opportunities. And I'm seeing this happen with grad students, with new faculty. You know, there's all these requests you get now for writing tenure letters for junior faculty who are working in the space now. And I'm, for my misfortune, I'm one of the allegedly senior people in the space, so I have to do this. But it's great to see all of this work going on because there are people who are jumping in and trying to think about how to think imaginatively and creatively in a way that, you know, I wasn't thinking about that they are thinking about now. So it's, it's really cool. All of that is amazing. I think linking back to what you were talking about in the beginning about your, your inspiration being about uh, nudges and, and imagining what it would be like to live in a world where all of your decisions are controlled or nudged by algorithms based on things that they've learned about you. And this importance that you've been, touching on of imagination and thinking through what are the societal implications of your work. This has all been voluntary. This has all been researchers or uh, companies voluntarily deciding to self-regulate. What are your thoughts about the consumer facing kind of algorithms being regulated? Is this something that you feel like we really need to do because perhaps there's not enough self-regulation. There aren't enough people that really are taking the kind of effort that you are to think through the potential societal implications of, of their work and what might be the right government body to, to implement this. I mean, you probably know my answer already because of the work mm -hmm. I've been doing, but I don't think self-regulation is anywhere near enough. There are some people who will do this because, as you said, it's voluntary. They just want to and they care. And that's great. 
but you can't rely on that. That's not enough. That's that that moves the needle a little bit. But to bring the vast, you know, middle ground of folks into the space, you need some incentives. Now, incentives can be positive, and there's all of that as well. Incentives can be negative, and there's you need some of that as well. So I think you need a mix of regulation, a little bit of stick, a little bit of carrot. And um, you know, you should do this because it's good for you. But if you don't, you know, and I think I, I think we need both kinds. I, I know that there's a lot of hesitance around regulation in industry, but I find that puzzling because we accept and value regulation in so many things that we take for granted, right? I mean, I have a seatbelt on my car. Would you drive a car without a seatbelt? There were huge battles. I mean, people were claiming communist conspiracies about the use of seatbelts, and we just take it for granted now. Again, this is one of those things where we get caught in these mindsets about what we think should be, and we we, we forget that we've had these arguments before. We, we don't have formal dehyde in our milk. This is, I would argue, is a good thing, but it didn't happen because everyone decided to stop adulterating milk with weird, you know, white powders. It's because, you know, government bodies started realizing that they have to step in and do something because people were dying from the bad quality food they were eating. That did not happen voluntarily. <laughs> and so, and we were fine with it. We're fine with the FDA regulating drugs. We, well, most of us, hopefully. And we don't think that it's a bad thing that a drug has to go through clinical trials. Again, if not if you're a pharma company, but otherwise you do. We have no trouble with regulation in so many spheres. Why do we have so much trouble with regulation in this one? I, I honestly, I'm very puzzled by this. I, I just don't get it. Those are such helpful illustrations to put into context what regulation is and is not about. You know, when we're talking to companies in particular and trying to get them to care about this work, we talk about employee retention. Employees don't want to be a part of a product that is creating harm and that's not inclusive. We talk about brand integrity. You want to build trust in your brand if your AI is hurting people or if it's not inclusive, you know, who can trust your AI, let alone your brand. But when we talk about litigation, we also talk about the positive carrot. You have a broader consumer base if you create your AI for more people. But at the end of the day, when we talk about the laws on the books, the laws that will be coming on the books, that's when people lean in. And that's when they decide, okay, this is not uh, something I need to think about in the future. This is something I need to act on now. Yeah. Speaking of, you recently served as an advisor in the White House Office of Science and Technology, and you were doing this very work to promote policies for ethical and fair uses of AI. We'll want to hear about many of the projects you were working on, but we wanted to first start with the blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights that you worked on and that was released last month. Can you tell us a little bit about what was involved in developing such a policy? What was your goal for the blueprint for the AI Bill of Rights? Uh, as people may know that you focused on five principles, safe and effective systems, algorithmic discrimination protections, data privacy, notice and explanation, and fifth is human alternatives, consideration, and fallback. So we'd also love to hear how did these five principles help meet your goal, establish your goal that you were trying to accomplish with establishing this blueprint? Yeah, and I should say, we weren't trying to put out regulations for fair and ethical AI. We were trying to put out something that would protect people. And if it meant that you shouldn't be using AI, that's fine too. But that's, that's, that's something I want to sort of, because I think that's a, an important point. Since you asked, what was the goal? I think we, 
and I say we, there were a lot of us doing this work, right? I want to sort of mention, I cannot mention enough sort of the leadership of Alondra Nelson and sort of just envisioning this whole plan and sort of executing and getting us to sort of work on this. So I really, you know, I'm grateful to her for that opportunity. I think our goal was, it was very important for us, even though these are referred to as principles, that there's been more than that, right? We've, I think I, when I last checked, there were, 53 million 730,000 different principles for AI. And, you know, I think uh, I'm joking, but, but, you know, something very large like that, right? You know, there are, there are papers that are doing meta reviews of principles of AI, and there are papers doing meta reviews of the meta reviews of principles of AI. So we didn't want to put out just another set of principles. I mean, there are plenty of those. That's fine. What we wanted was to shift the focus away from the technology and put the focus where we thought it should matter and does matter the harms to individuals, the harms to people, and harms to communities, and try to articulate what kind of protections we needed for people in an age where algorithms are being used more and more. And so the principles were, you know, there is a principle about safe and effective systems, right, that talks about how systems should be validated and checked for effectiveness and safety before they're deployed. But a lot of the things that you mentioned, the, the other four principles, are about impacts on people, right, that we should not be discriminated against that we are, privacy should be protected, that we should have the right to know when systems are being used and we should have the right to know why they're being used and how, and that there should be backup plans that, you know, we should be able to talk to people to get, you know, our, our complaints adjudicated to get fallbacks. That's very important because I think a focus on impacts on people was the cornerstone of what we were trying to do because we felt like this is the role of government to sort of think about what the impacts and harms of people are and what to do about that. So the document tries to lay out a case for this almost, right, with the why is this principle important section in every in every principle thing, try to lay out the case of where the harms come from, what the harm vectors are, because it's very hard to talk about what you should be doing if you don't articulate where the different kinds of harms are. And for many of these principles, the way in which a lack of compliance with the principle causes harm, it occurs in different ways, right? When systems don't work, they fail in different ways for different groups of people in different forms. And it's important to lay that out. So that was our, our, our sort of North Star was always, what are the harms people are facing and how do we protect them against them? And, and what's core set of ideas are important here? So, you know, we, over the course of developing the document with all the feedback we got from inside government and outside, you know, the, I think the number may have changed. It, we settled on five at some point because that captured more or less all the core elements that we wanted. And uh, there was a lot of help and input. And it was kind of funny, right? Because at some point we were deep in the weeds coming up with these principles and then we resurfaced at some point and we're looking around to see what other principles. And it turns out they matched pretty well with, you know, what other principle documents were. If you look at the OECD principles, you look at, you know, other guidelines, global guidelines, or others that they're not, they're not unreasonable, right? You know, you want systems to not be biased. You want data to be protected. I mean, these are all reasonable things. I think that's a, you know, as an academic, if I put my academic hat back on, I was like, I want the new cutting edge thing. If someone else has said it, it's not worth saying. But in fact, here's a good thing to say things that other people are saying, because you're not, you're not being, you're not going out on a limb and being sort of a, a wild-haired revolutionary. You're just trying to encode and sort of codify things that people are already saying, but just say it very clearly that this is important. I love that final point. I, I don't think we can make some of these core points often enough. I, we, we need to continue underscoring them so that this just becomes common understanding. And it's not a few people who who get this, but broadly, we all are, are coming together on the same page. 
And there are so many different principles, you know, similar in themes and, and intents. Um, but there are also many different approaches that different countries, regions, organizations are, are taking. So in the U.S., we have NIST, the National Institutes of Standards. They are finalizing their AI risk management framework. We're all waiting um, for the, the EU AI Act text to be finalized and for that clock to start ticking yeah. uh, for the implementation period. Um, but the blueprint takes a, a different agency-led, sector-focused, non-regulatory approach. And I think you touched on, on this just a little bit about how this came to be, but it would be great to, to hear from you what you think the advantages and disadvantages are of that approach, yeah. including, I think there's been some criticism that this isn't really meaningful or effective because it's not legally binding like the EU AI Act. So how do you respond to those thoughts and, and how do you think that this might integrate or support the work that, that NIST is doing? So whenever someone complains that this is not legally binding with the EUA Act, I get very happy. I'm sure the EU folks aren't because, you know, we're a tiny policy shop in the White House writing a white paper and we're being compared to this monolithic, massive piece of legislation. It's good for us, not good so good for them. <laughs> but but, but, the, but the answer to your point is, you know, again, we're OSTP. We're not Congress. We don't write laws. So there was never, there was, this was never going to be legally binding in the first place. Secondly, we're not the FTC or the FCC or the EEOC. We're not writing regulation either. That's not, that's not our job. It's not our scope. It's not our mandate. We can't do any of those things. And so, you know, I think the critique is totally valid, but the critique you might argue should be directed at why isn't Congress enacting a bill that captures like, why isn't the Algorithmic Accountability Act being passed, right? Because that's, if you want legislation, that's how you have to go. Right. So what we were trying to do is saying, okay, we're an OSTP. There are things we can do. There are things we can't do. What is the best, most effective thing we can do? OSTP does science and tech policy. We do convening. We coordinate science and tech policy across the U.S. government. We're very good at that. Can we find a way to articulate in a coordinated way across the U.S. government what a vision for AI policy should look like? And, then, and this is what we can produce. So this, this document right, reflects thousands, and I'm not even exaggerating, thousands of comments from across the U.S. government, very pertinent, salient comments that capture all the different nuances of these issues. So you mentioned this whole issue of sectorial approaches versus global approaches. I think to some extent, while I understand the question, I feel like there's a bit of a false dichotomy there, because the real answer is you have to have both. You cannot only have a horizontal approach. You cannot only have a sectorial approach. And only horizontal approach is too vague. You need details. And so eventually you have to be sectorial. And only sectorial approaches run the risk of being inconsistent. So that the way you describe, define discrimination in healthcare should not be fundamentally different the way you define discrimination in hiring. And there's really some consistency across them. So you need a bit of both. The US approach is generally much more sectorial. And again, you don't want to try and changed completely the way the U.S. government operates. So it made sense to be more sectorial. And that's true for most policies here, which is why things like, you know, passing national privacy legislation is hard because, again, it's one of those things. But I do believe that we learned a lot from talking to agencies about their own concerns with the way AI gets used and the way they can oversee it and, and their own jurisdiction over it and over automation in general. It made sense to have that sort of sectorial approach. I mean, the principles themselves are, again, a very high level. They apply. But we did a bit of, you know, to use the barrier term, we did a bit of dog fooding, where as we were developing the principles, 
we were talking with the agencies who had questions for us. And without necessarily saying, oh, we have this document we're drafting, let's apply it. We actually applied it. <laughs> and so we could actually see how the principles were going to apply in individual contexts in different agencies, which is a good way for us to see whether we were being too vague or not. Right. And so that's why there's not just the principles, but you know, the reason why 73 pages long is because there's all these expectations. And these expectations are general, but you can imagine them applying in any given sector reasonably well, with some customization, but reasonably well. But I mean, the US government is a, is a very complicated place. I mean, needless to say, right? It's just uh, there's lots of overlapping jurisdictions, authorities, controls, and it's it's tricky. I mean, I I, I almost this is probably another bad analogy because I'm not a lawyer, but in some way, it's one thing to have EU legislation, but then individual member nations have to pass their own versions of it, right? It's kind of like that, right? That, you know, we can say something up top, but then individual agencies have to implement in their own specific way. And so even the AI Act, as broad as it is, is going to have to be made specific within individual country guidelines in the way that they see that's how to do. So, you know, so that's how I see it. Well, thank you for that context. It's really helpful to understand what your process was and, and the thinking. You know, I was privileged to serve two tours in the White House. So I know that on a daily basis, you are just so fortunate to work on so many topics that you're so passionate about, those that you knew you're passionate about and new ones you had no idea that would become so important to you. And so I don't want us to miss out on hearing about some of the other things you had underway while you were there. I understand you are working more generally on coordinating federal government activities around technology and that you did extensive outreach to stakeholders. You had panels with representatives from government and industry and civil society and community groups. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the other policies you worked on? So all of what you described was was just for the AI Bill of Rights work, right? And so that was all of that. I also spent a lot of time working in sort of misinformation policy, which is, uh, I have to say, a much harder problem, <laughs> you know, in, in weird ways. It's just, it's just a much trickier question, set of questions. This, you know, manifested itself in issues around tech accountability, platform accountability. This manifested itself in, you know, where the federal government should invest research dollars in and thinking about these issues. And it was a tricky problem. So, I mean, the work is ongoing. I hope that, you know, I, I, at, at some point, I you know, I, when I left, the work continued on and I'm hoping it'll come out soon. There was a sort of a, a goal. The goal is to sort of produce a, a sort of a strategic R&D report on how the federal government should invest to do more on understanding the dynamics of the information economy and the disinformation economy. And so I spent a lot of time sort of just thinking and talking to people. And again, in a very, you know, across U.S. government way, thinking about these issues. And that's that's a whole other set of very tricky concerns because it's as you can imagine, right? It's, it's about national security. It's about speech. It's about platforms. It's 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 complicated in ways that you know, as complicated as the AI policy was, it was different. And I and I think you know, as you as you probably know, Miriam, right? You know, when you're when you're one of the few, maybe two or three, I think, computer scientists in OSTP, you get asked a lot of questions about tech stuff, where you know you're the tech expert, and so you know things where I didn't think I was an expert, but I sort of knew enough more than other people to be dangerous, so I had to weigh in on things like that. <laughs> it's so interesting to hear about your work on misinformation or perhaps disinformation policy. I don't oh, know. That's a whole, that's a whole other story right there. That's just the nomenclature. <laughs> yes. Yes. So I don't know if you spent a lot of time differentiating between, between those two and it's extremely timely and pertinent right now for a number of, of reasons that 
I won't digress and, and go into at the moment. But I think we could probably do a whole separate podcast just on that once once that strategic R&D proposal comes out. But going back to the responsible AI, what do you think are the most important developments that you'd like to see USAI policy promote to ensure that we have fair use of AI? And what advice would you give our U.S. policymakers? Because again, to the point that you made, OSTP not not empowered to create regulation. You know, co- Congress and these other agencies are. So, what advice would you give these policymakers, based on your your expertise and the experience that you have now, to ensure that we, again, are are protecting people from harms, which was that core piece for the goal of of the AI Bill of Rights? I mean, I'm going to be cheesy and a little bit selfish here and say, you know, the blueprint was designed as a blueprint to provide that scaffolding for constructing specific regulation, for constructing legislation, whether it's state level, whether it's city level, whether it's federal level. And I would love to see if policymakers now can pick up on that document and use it as a scaffolding you know, maybe they're looking at something more specific. Maybe they want to provide accountability guidelines. Maybe they want to sort of build an auditing framework. There's stuff in the document for all of these things. And so if what happens is that the document gets taken apart piecemeal and different parts get put into different forms, that would be fine by me. If there was a way to, you know, to pass a version of the Algorithm Accountability Act in its current form or with modifications, that would be great too. Frankly, anything would be better than where we are right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and I think the patchwork of so the slow growing patchwork of state and city level legislation is something, but we've had 20 years of confusing privacy legislation, you know, and people demanding national level thing. And, you know, if ADPA passes, uh, that would be good, but we don't want to have 20 years of conflicting AI legislation while companies start essentially having to adapt to the AI act, which, you know, has some good things about it, but things that I think are, you know, not in alignment with how we were thinking about the Bill of Rights. So I would say, if you can't do anything else, just pick up on the guidelines that that were in the document and sort of see to what extent you can put them into your checks, your procurement guidelines, your you know local policies, you know your regulations, your legislation, whatever have you. I think that's where I would start. Um, and I think if I had to pick one thing, I would say, and this is kind of shocking, right? I've had this conversation a few times now. The fact that so many systems are out there that just don't work is just very scary. <laughs> and it's hard to make people believe this because like there's no way systems that don't work would be out there affecting people. And like, uh-huh, they are in fact, and they don't have any. So even if you just look at the five principles, okay, just the safe and effective, that, that would be nice to have something along those lines. It's not too much to ask. And can we at least please do something to make sure we don't put out systems and use people as guinea pigs to do beta testing when we should be testing it in sandboxes? I mean, that's something I would have liked to see. And that doesn't seem to be too much of an ask. Well, interesting. Well, for all the policymakers listening, you've got your marching orders now. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so you have done your piece in, in, in the White House and now you're back at Brown, as we mentioned. And I'm very curious to hear 
how you see your work differently after your White House experience. My husband also went from academia to a stint in government, and I've been in government in different roles since I was 15. And so hearing his revelations on a daily basis were fascinating and, and really, I think, interesting uh, that we can all learn from. But I also want to hear about what you're doing now. So I know you're teaching a course on algorithmic fairness and establishing a center for technology, responsibility, reimagination, and redesign. Mm -hmm. So another question I would have is, what should all computer science courses learn from your program that you are now teaching? And what can we expect to see out of the center? Oh, yeah, on the whole, like, uh, what's it like to be an academic going to Washington, coming back? You know, it's, it, you know, uh, there's so many things I could say. So I'll, I'll let, let me answer the other questions first, and then we can get back to that. So I, I will say that my, you know, brief stint in government has sort of very fundamentally changed how I think about what is impact, what is the role of academics, what can we do, and what we could do better. And I think the center which has been, you know, something I've been thinking about for a long time, is now, I think, to some extent, being informed by those thoughts as well. So what was the goal? The goal of the center has always been, you said, technology, reimagination, redesign, right? Can we build tech that actually speaks to all our concerns, that actually speaks to all our human needs, that helps us be as human as we want to be. I'm not advocating that we build tech to be our best selves. I don't always want to be my best self. Sometimes I just want to be grumpy and sit in a corner. But even then, I would like my tech to allow me to be grumpy and sit in a corner if I want to, because I want to. And so can we allow tech to be ourselves, be our human selves? And I think that's what the visual center is. That tech can be a partner. We can think about how to do, build, solve new problems, ask new questions. We can think about how to teach our students to have that expanded imagination. And Brown's, you know, is a great place for this, as you as you probably already know, Miriam. It's a, it's a place where people are already thinking about these questions. And it's it's at the center can also be a place, which I think academics don't do enough of, a place of change, a place of action, like doing something about this, right? I feel like we are now still in a place where the window hasn't quite closed yet. There's still opportunities to change and make make a difference in how tech is going to evolve. But we have to do it now. I can't write my papers and wait for 10 years for someone to read it. I have to be the one out there making the change. So maybe, you know, if I have to write fewer papers, but spend more time thinking about doing impactful work, maybe that's an okay thing for me to do as a, you know, allegedly senior academic who can afford to do this, right? I mean, that's, that's a good use of my time, right? To think about the impact of the work I'm doing and making sure that I can both have impact, but also lift up the voices of those who don't always get heard but I can help get heard in, in places where people are willing to listen to me for whatever reason. So that's what I'd like for the center to do where, you know, we're in the process of getting it approved. I just today got an email saying that we're very close. So I'm optimistic within, you know, maybe a few weeks we'll be done with this and we'll be, I'll be able to officially announce it. I think that's the vision, a place on campus where you can bring, there's so many people on campus in different disciplines across Brown who are talking about this. The center itself is not just inside CS, it's actually in a data science institute and is going to bring people from across campus, from philosophy, from sociology. I just met with someone who does social psychology today, economics and, and disciplines like public health who are thinking about health disparities and engineering. I've been talking to people across campus doing all of this work and the goal is to, for the center to be this home where people can come and solve problems together, bring the disciplinary lens, but not have one lens necessarily dominate. Have whichever tools you need to solve the problem. 
that's the goal for what I want to do. And so I'm hopeful I can do it. It's it's uh, different to the kind of academic job I used to have, but it's uh, it, maybe it's exciting and new. And so it's, it's fun to sort of see what can happen there. I absolutely love that. And going back to the uh, our, our last podcast with Joaquin, he also talked about the importance of diversity to responsible AI and this need of solving problems together, raising up the voices that aren't being heard, making sure that they are involved in decisions that are being made. I think everyone can agree on this, but actually putting that sentiment into action is what's so powerful. And so I'm I'm really excited to see this. I have my fingers crossed for your upcoming Me announcement. Too. <laughs> yes. Me too. If I can say one thing about that, right? And I want to yeah. sort of give props to the folks at OSTP, right? I learned from here. There was a deep, deep commitment from day one at OSTP to engage with people on, you know, issues of concern to the to the public. And that didn't just mean, oh, put out an RFI and wait for responses. It meant put out an RFI, go and encourage people to write to write into the RFI, encourage people to send an email if they didn't want to write to the RFI, organize listening sessions where people could just come and talk if they didn't want to write an email, making sure you organize listening sessions so that people could be off work and at home and they didn't have to take off time from work to go. These are all things that, you know, were pointed out to me by all the folks doing public engagement at OSCP. And it was one of those things where you're never going to get this perfect. But if you spend the time thinking about it, you can do a little bit better than what happened before. And you can then the next event can be a little better. So one group at OSCP would run an event and they would pass on what they had learned and what didn't work. The next group would take that and then build on that. And so over time, you know, that people learned a lot about how to really do honest and really aggressive public engagement. Because, you know, what I didn't realize, and I'm sure Miriam, you know this, right, is that there's a whole industry of people who are waiting to respond to everything the government puts out. And they're the same people who respond to everything all the time. And if you have to get beyond those bubbles, you have to really put in the effort. So I think to the to your point about, you know, about issues of diversity, about issues of community engagement, where I, I am not by any means, you know, an, an expert or even remotely competent on this. I'm going to make a lot of it. I think the goal is to just to make sure we spend time thinking about it and doing what we can and then just keep hydrating because <laughs> that's that's the only way we're going to make any change here. It's not the goal to say, okay, we have the answer. We have the formula. We're just going to implement this. But I think I, I have learned a lot from what others at OSTP have taught me about how to do this. And I, I think that's what I would like to carry into the work of the center here. Yeah, you, you've got to meet people where they are. You can't say like, this is how we're going to work. This is the one way we are going to engage with people, especially if you are trying to reach out and include those underrepresented voices. There's a reason why they're underrepresented. There's a reason why they're not being heard. It's because the way we've always worked doesn't work. And so it takes effort. It, it effort. really, it takes a lot of iteration and time, but the payoff is, is critical. Well, I hate that we have to wrap up, but we always like to close our show by asking our guests one final question. So if you had a magic wand that could be used for a wish to help us achieve responsible AI, what would you wish for? Oh boy. Totally easy. <laughs> a magic wand. I would really like a magic wand that would dispel this fog of rhetoric around AI that it is always, you know, 
a force for good unless proven otherwise. It's not a force for bad. It just is a thing. And so I would like that want to dispel that, like that whole sparkly rainbow dust around it. So we could just treat it like any other technology, which has things that are good and things that are not good and that we can sort of just calmly talk about it. It's, it's a weird thing, but I, I feel like that's like half the battle. <laughs> just getting beyond the the messaging and the FUD and the and the just the the incessant hype machine around uh tech. It's like I love tech. I don't need the hype. Can we just please stop? <laughs> we often talk internally about the AI magic dust. Just sprinkle oh God, some yeah. AI on it. It's like bacon. It makes everything better. And but bacon does make everything better. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a vegan or a vegetarian, I think they may or, disagree with uh, you. Uh, fair you enough. Fair enough. My, my son's a vegetarian, but he weakens when he sees bacon. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, thank you. I think that's such an important point on AI omniscience, and that is not such a thing. That it doesn't exist. So. Thank you, Suresh, for taking the time to share your experience and your insights with us today. And we'll look forward to continuing to follow the important work you're doing. I just want to thank both of you for giving me the chance to talk to you. It's been great. I, I love the work that both of you are doing. And Kathy, you are a force of nature. I'm always thank glad you. to talk to you. <laughs> thank you. So wonderful to be able to talk to you. Likewise. Thank you both. Kathy, Suresh gave us so much to think about. What were some of the biggest takeaways for you? I could not agree more. I know our listeners couldn't see, but I was nodding my head so hard at so many different things that he was talking about. But one of them in particular is this kind of evolution of regulations and what companies or society in the beginning are willing to accept or what they push back against and then what eventually just becomes standard expectations. And he gave the examples of seatbelts. You would never buy a car today without a, a seatbelt, even airbags. And, and yet back in the day when these were proposed, people were outraged. Companies were outraged and similarly food. Not too much TMI here, but I recently got over an awful, awful case of food poisoning poisoning that sent me to the ER. And I was surprised about that because I think we all are just so used to the food we eat being safe. And so his point of how is it with AI that that there's so much pushback against regulating it and ensuring that it's as safe for people as seatbelts or food is, that really um, spoke to me. I agree. I love how he puts it in practice and, and as well as puts that context in to normalize uh, what is and is not a reasonable expectation. I also noticed a theme across so many of the insights he shared where what is keeping us back from progress is a vantage point. It's a lack of imagination. It's being stuck in our own mindset. You know, you saw that when he was starting off talking about computer scientists who once you open their eyes to the harm they could be doing, they don't want to be doing harm. They've just been taught to create for efficiency or in a certain way. But if you change the scope of what the job was, it's an interesting how he talks about, you know, it's it's a small switch, but obviously so impactful in the results of, of, of how society will benefit and realize less harms just from that simple switch in a, in a mindset. You heard him talk about that in his work at the White House and helping people 
people understand what AI is, what the harms could be. You can tell he's enthusiastic about it. He's been working with, with AI and computer scientists for decades, but you know, understanding where should it not be? Where could the harms be? Where do we need to have guardrails in place? Uh, and even in, in academia, I mean, it sounds that his mindset and vision has shifted from having sat in a different seat to understanding the importance of the work of academia through the lens of impact. So, you know, it just struck me how many of us could benefit from sitting in a different seat, talking to people outside of our bubble and our normal discourse, and just being able to see, you know, maybe regulating AI is, is a form of the seatbelt. And, and how do we make that seatbelt so that it protects us, it doesn't encumber us, we can still drive, we can still reach to the back seat, but we get from point A to point B safely in the way that the car intends to get us there, just as the way that AI intends to benefit us. But depends on the use case, it depends on the industry, it depends on context, which will need regulation in some respects to, to help us navigate. The points that he was making about this changing of perspective and the creation of the blueprint, that it really was the importance of situating this in context. AI can fail in different ways for different people. And the only way you know that is by being inclusive, bringing those diverse voices in and understanding how do you design something so that uh, when it's fair, it's equally fair for everyone, that it doesn't fail disproportionately for, for one group. And so I think the points of changing and evolving how he has thought and how he has worked Part of that has been by interacting with and engaging with really diverse voices. And that's so critical for all of us. Yeah, every show we seem to get back to that core issue. There's no way around it. We are all excited for what AI can do, but we want to make sure that we can all benefit in the same way from this new technology. So thank you so much for another enlightening conversation. I'm so glad you were able to jump in today and it's always a pleasure to hear your insights. I just love these opportunities. So thank you so much for having me. Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible.